I've always enjoyed the grit that it takes to get over something. So like, if I do something on my first try, it's like, oh, okay, I don't really need to do that again. But if I tried something like 10 times, finally do it, I'll be like, oh man, I should try and do it again. That's the voice of 25-year-old climber Kyra Condi. In just a few weeks, she'll represent the U.S. in the Olympics' first ever climbing competition. When she does, it'll be yet another display of just how far that grit has carried her. When Kyra was a young kid, after she'd already begun climbing, back pain led her to discover a case of scoliosis so severe that her spine bent at a 53-degree angle. At age 12, she had surgery to fuse 10 of her vertebrae. She says it makes it difficult for her to even put on her seatbelt. And yet here she is, about to climb in her first Olympics. On today's episode, you'll hear from Kyra and from Dr. Lindsay Shaw, a sports psychologist she works with and who Kyra gave us permission to speak to. You'll hear not just about Kyra's story, which is incredible, but also about the set of psychological tools that Kyra has used to help her in her climbing. You'll learn the importance of having a growth mindset instead of a fixed mindset, the biological explanation for why visualization works, and yes, there really is one, and how to dial in your focus when an outcome, like winning a gold medal, looms large. I'm Clay Skipper, and you're listening to Smarter, Better, Faster, Stronger, a GQ sports podcast that goes inside the minds of Olympians heading to Tokyo. I'm trying to figure out how, on a stage where everyone's at their physical peak, the world's top athletes get a mental edge. On today's episode, you'll hear from Kyra Condi, who has a tattoo I was eager to ask her about. So first thing I want to ask you about is you suck, try harder. <laughs> okay, yeah. So I guess a little bit of backstory. I have a tattoo that says you suck, try harder. It's on my thigh and it's like facing me so I can read it. And where that comes from is actually my home gym where I started climbing in Minnesota is called Vertical Endeavors. And somebody had taken a Sharpie and wrote that on the wall, just you suck, try harder. It can sound really negative, you know, but for me, I'm not like actually telling myself you suck. It's more of a remember to stay humble. Like there's always room for improvement, especially in climbing. Kyra says she got this tattoo after the first qualification event for the 2020 Olympics where she failed to qualify. The first qualification event for the Olympics for 2020, I didn't make it at the first event and was like really stressed about it and needed that reminder that, you know, I can work hard and I can still do it. So I got that tattoo in between that event and then the event that I qualified. And my plan was to get the Olympic rings underneath it once I go to the Olympics. But like I had this whole plan. So I was like, I am going to make it. I got this tattoo. It means all these things. And then it's also a reminder that I can do this. And then I ended up doing it. So kind of cool. Climbing seems more so than almost any other sport to be a very humbling sport. You have to fail so often. Yeah, it's so true. I think that's kind of a culture shock for a lot of people when they start climbing is that it is so much failure. Like I've seen people quit because they can't really handle it, but it is, it keeps your ego in check. I think it's really good. Every session that I go into the gym, I'm trying moves that feel totally impossible sometimes. And sometimes the win in that is that I got closer to the hold, like not even closer to holding it, like closer to even touching it, you know? And so like, sometimes you have to really find these wins in really interesting areas that you wouldn't normally find. Like in gymnastics is probably kind of similar as my guess is if you're trying a new trick or a new skill, I guess, you probably are finding the wins and almost doing it or like doing it with assistance for the first time and stuff like that. And it's really similar in climbing. Now, is that something you, when you first started climbing, you had to get used to? If something comes easy to me, it's like, it's just not as fun, you know? I've always enjoyed the grit that it takes to 
get over something. So like if I do something on my first try, it's like, okay, I don't really need to do that again. But if I tried something like 10 times, finally do it, I'll be like, oh man, I should try and do it again. What if I can do it two times? So like that's just kind of my personality. And so I've always really enjoyed that aspect of climbing. What Kyra is describing here as her gritty personality, a psychologist would call her mindset. In 2006, a psychologist named Carol Dweck wrote a now famous book in sports psychology that is all about mindset. Titled, unsurprisingly, Mindset, it divides people into two categories. Those with a fixed mindset and those, like Kyra, with a growth mindset. Here, describing the difference between the two is Dr. Lindsay Shaw, a psychophysiologist who works with U.S. Olympians like Kyra. If we were going to be very stereotypical and there were only two mindsets, one is growth mindset and one is fixed mindset. So the self-talk of someone with a fixed mindset is sort of like, oh, that looks hard. I don't I'm not good at that. I can't do this the way those holds are set. I'm not going to be able to do it. Like last time I couldn't do it. I just can't do that. Some research says you sort of learn to have that commentary by some of the feedback that you were given as a kid. Either, oh, you're really good at this. You're good at math. You did well on that math test because you're just good at it. Not because you worked hard and studied and struggled with yourself in the midst of the test. You performed well because you're just you're just naturally good. You've got these talents and they're fixed and there's nothing you can do to make yourself better at things. The sort of self-talk associated with a growth mindset, it's not overly optimistic, but it's like, okay, I'm not so good at this right now. Or, okay, the way those holds are set does look challenging. So I'm going to make sure I'm really focused on using my feet. I'm really focused on my hand placement. I'm really focused on hearing the audio cue for the start and then telling myself to go. And I'm going to see what happens, right? The growth mindset recognizes that, yes, certain people have certain gifts and talents, but many people can learn to become skillful through effort. And so there's this rewarding of hard work and working smart and being persistent with yourself or being gritty, resilient, all of these psychological constructs as opposed to, well, you're good at this and you're just not. So to summarize what Dr. Shaw just said, someone with a fixed mindset largely thinks their talents are fixed. Someone with a growth mindset believes they can grow their talents through training and hard work. This means that someone with a fixed mindset is going to have a far greater struggle dealing with failure. The challenging thing from a sports psychology perspective is a young athlete who's never failed, sometimes they can have this unbridled, fixed mindset of, I'm just good at sport X. I'm, I'm winning because I'm just a great climber. That's just all there is to it. And then they get on the World Cup scene and they lose. And then that explanation doesn't really help, right? Now I didn't win because I'm just not good anymore. And they really struggle. And you can almost have a bit of an athletic identity crisis. So you help them realize that, yeah, maybe they have these gifts and talents 100%, but that doesn't explain the whole story, right? It was They do have the capacity to work hard and struggle with themselves and bounce back from setbacks, but that hadn't been part of their story earlier. So we help them sort of re-narrate their story. If Kyra has a growth mindset, it's because setbacks and hard work have been a part of her story from an early age. At age 12, she needed a spinal fusion surgery to help with a severe case of scoliosis. 
I remember my back was in a lot of pain and I didn't know why because I was 11 and that seemed like an old lady thing. So I was doing some Google searches, I think, and I found out that scoliosis was probably a reason. And so I asked a guy at the gym, actually, who I knew who was a physical therapist, if he could check me for scoliosis. And he did. And he was like, oh, you should probably go to the doctor. And so got an x-ray. Immediately was pretty bad. Like it was bad enough to need surgery. And I remember the doctor calling me and me just sobbing because I knew that meant I needed surgery and that that would maybe take climbing away from me. And the first doctor I went to was actually really not supportive, told me that one day I would have a family and that climbing wouldn't be very important to me. And so I shouldn't be that sad. He told me it'd be like nine months until I could maybe climb again and probably wouldn't be like as good as I was before. Like he was, I think, trying to just moderate expectations. And that just really didn't sit well with me. So I really wanted to find a new doctor. So we got a second opinion and he was super supportive, told me to send him a picture when I was back on top of the podium, like all these things. And so I wanted to go with him. And he also decided to fuse two less vertebrae than the other doctor was going to fuse. So I actually saved a lot of mobility that I would have lost if I had gotten the 12 vertebrae fused versus 10. But I still have a slight curve in my back still. So the first doctor was going to completely straighten my back. And then this doctor left about a 25 degree curve. Yeah. And so that, I think, saved me that mobility, but I still have some scoliosis. Wow. You say your spine's at 25% now. What was it before the surgery? When I first got my first x-ray, it was 53 degrees. And then I actually waited three months so that I could compete at youth nationals before my surgery. And it got worse in that time. So it got to 72 degrees. And then, yeah, now after surgery, I have, I think, about a 23-degree curve, 25 degrees, somewhere in there. And when did you feel like you might have a future in climbing? I think I really started thinking that climbing was something I could do as a career. Probably the first time I won youth nationals, which was probably pretty optimistic looking back. (laughs) But that, like, really showed me that lesson of that I could work really hard at something and then could accomplish it even after a big setback like back surgery. Because obviously winning youth nationals was this huge goal of mine that I had since I was 11 years old. So when it came true, it's like, oh, like I should set bigger goals. <laughs> and so it was like, you know, oh, maybe I can do something at Youth Worlds or maybe I can make podium at the Open Nationals, stuff like that. And then like maybe I can make the Olympics. And so I think it's just kind of never being satisfied with where I'm at, but like being really excited and happy about reaching those goals, but then always kind of setting a new one. I might be projecting here, but I was a pretty bashful 12-year-old. So if a doctor <laughs> told me like, this is what's happening, I'd be like, okay. I mean, it's amazing <laughs> to me that you sort of had the confidence to be like, I'm not taking that as an answer. That's amazing. Where do you think that sort of came from? Yeah, I think I've always had a really stubborn personality. And so if somebody told me like, I can't do something, I'd be like, fuck you, I can do it. You know, (laughs) like maybe maybe not when I was 12, but in the same idea, you know, I mean, definitely pushed me to want to prove that doctor wrong, I think. But I also just kind of knew that I would be able to get back into climbing. Like even when he told me that I couldn't, I was like, man, I can. I know I can. I think, yeah, that just is like a personality trait more than anything. Did the surgery change your approach to climbing at all? So it's actually funny. If you had asked me that six years ago, I would have said no, not at all. If you asked me that this year, my answer is yes, a lot, actually. The style that climbing has become, it used to be really straightforward on the wall. There was not very many awkward positions. It was more about doing hard pulling moves and stuff. Like in that style, I don't think my back matters even a little bit, really. In this new style of climbing, movement has gotten a lot more precise and really awkward a lot of times. Or it's like these big, powerful moves out of awkward positions. And those positions are really hard when you can't bend your back. And so that, that's been a really big struggle this year that I've been working on with my coach is trying to figure out how to do this kind of new style of climbing and make it work for me and my body because I can't do it the way other people can do it a lot of times. It usually is possible, but it's usually hard for me to see how it's going to be possible. I just want to pause there because I feel like not being able to bend your back, that's like such a mind-blowing thing. I mean, how does it even work? Because I feel like on a <laughs> wall, you're so in such awkward positions. 
Yeah, so I'm lucky, like I said, that my fusion is T2 through T12, so I can bend my neck and my lower back, but it's really those, like, side bending positions. So, like, say, like, you're stretching on the ground, you're in, like, the pizza slice position stretch, and you, like, reach for your left foot or your right foot. That position is super hard for me. I just can't side bend at all because that's, like, when you bend your thoracic spine. And then twisting is basically all in your thoracic spine. So things like putting on my seatbelt in my car are really hard because, you know, you, like, reach over your shoulder. Hard to put on a seatbelt, but can <laughs> climb a boulder. I mean, unbelievable. I Life is funny. Dr. Shaw says athletes who have a growth mindset don't see setbacks as limits, but instead as problems to be solved. They say, okay, this is the reality of my situation. I had to have my spine fused. I'm five inches shorter than the average person who plays this position in my sport, or I don't have a $10,000 bike. Okay, given that's a situation, now what can I do to work harder or smarter or come up with other strategies to navigate around this potential limitation in my performance. It sounds like that is what Kyra has done. And that is what so many of the athletes going to Tokyo this summer and so many of your listeners, like this very real thing, like maybe I don't have the money or the time in my career to go to business school. Well, what can I do? Maybe I can get some mentoring. Maybe I can read some books. Dr. Shaw says there's an important distinction to be made here. Having a growth mindset is not about blind optimism. Instead, it's more about radical acceptance. Because it's only once you accept the situation as it is that you can figure out a constructive way to work with it. It's not about denying the reality of the situation or being really Pollyannish. It's saying, like, this is what it is. You have to be a little bit careful with this. I mean, I don't want to give permission for people to be winners all the time and everyone gets a trophy. No, you want to be clear about, again, what are your strengths? Some bolder problems are set and they favor athletes, let's say, with a long wingspan. Okay, if you have a long wingspan, you're going to perform well on that bolder problem. If you don't have a long wingspan, you can't grow longer arms for this competition. So given that constraint, what else can you do? How else can you, you know, sort of use your body to sort of to sort of move through the problem? What if you completed one more hold? What if you moved up one more zone? Could that change the competition outcomes? It might, we don't know, but it's, there is value in keeping some part of your mind open that the outcome might be somewhat in your favor and that you have agency, like you have some measure of control in getting that outcome to come to fruition. This would be the first time climbing has ever appeared in the Olympics. It's unique in that the climbing competition involves three very different disciplines. There's bouldering, lead climbing, and speed climbing. Here Kyra explains each. Bouldering is my favorite and my specialty. It's kind of shorter climbs, so like 12 foot, 15 foot walls with like somewhere between four to eight moves usually. And they're really powerful. And that's when you can do really dynamic, really interesting movements because you have five minutes to climb it and you have unlimited tries in that five minutes. And that's like really what sets bouldering apart from lead. So in lead climbing, you use a rope and a harness and you clip in as you go. It's more endurance-based, but you only get one try. So they don't set as risky of moves on those climbs because they can't, because it's you only get that one try. So there's a time limit in lead And then speed climbing is the most straightforward. It's actually always the same. It's really different from the rest of climbing because in lead climbing and bouldering, you're always climbing on different climbs. Like I have never seen the climb 
that I'm going to do in qualifiers at the Olympics. And nobody has. They haven't even said it yet. It doesn't exist. And then speed climbing is like kind of total opposite. You could climb on the exact same wall in Chicago as you could in Moscow. And the holds are regulated. The degree of the wall is regulated. And that one's all about how fast you can go. So it's really muscle memory. And like world record is just insane. It's 15 meters and the world record is 5.2 seconds. For girls, it's 6.8, I believe. So what's so interesting to me about this is that it just seems like it takes very different mindsets, right? Like I'll walk through how I'm imagining it. And then I, obviously I want to hear you correct me, but like bouldering, like you said, it's like you get as many tries as you want. So you can sort of like not be reckless, but you can be a little more carefree. Lead sounds terrifying because if you slip on the first hold, you're done. And then speed is like you want to turn your brain completely off because you're just trying to scale this wall as fast as possible. Yeah, you kind of nailed it. That's basically exactly it. I was talking to my sports psych about this because it's really rare in sports to have. So there's a closed system and there's open systems in sport. Closed systems are things like gymnastics where you have a routine that you've rehearsed and you're doing the exact same thing in practice as you are doing in competition. So things like gymnastics or figure skating, things like that. Then there's these open systems, which are things like a soccer game, where anything can happen, you're having to evaluate as you go. You practice things in practice, but you're not going to have the exact same situation in competition as practice. And what climbing does is speed climbing is a closed system, which takes a certain type of mental focus. And then the other two are open systems, which takes a different type of focus. So it's really interesting that we have to do both in the Olympic format. Did this sports psych give you any advice on the different types of focuses that you should take to those differing disciplines there? The way that I approach, like you said, like a bouldering round versus a lead round is really different. And a lot of that has to do with just neurological engagement level, I guess, is how she puts it. Like it's kind of like a bell curve of like you could be really low engagement and be really chill. <laughs> or you could be kind of in that like mid range and be kind of hyped, but not too hyped. Or you can be like really high up on like that scale and be like, just jittery, which is usually not good. And then being too chill is usually not good. So figuring out where you want to be on that scale for each discipline is really important. What Kyra is talking about here has a very fancy name. It's something called the inverted U of optimal functioning. Here's Dr. Shaw explaining it in greater detail. So if you imagine an upside down U, right? So it's like a hill and on the bottom, there's just the level of activation in the nervous system. And it could be like of the whole nervous system of the mind and the body together, it could, you could have a couple different graphs, one for the mind, one for the body. And then on the vertical axis, there is performance. So in a very hypothetical situation, the U is centered over five. So if you had the level of activation of like one, two, three, your performance starts out low on the bottom of the inverted U and it climbs higher and higher. And when you get up to five, you're at your optimal performance level. And then if you get activated beyond the five, the performance starts to drop off. And we've all experienced situations like that. And think about if you have to give a public speech, you want to have a little bit of activation so you feel alert and ready to go. But if you get too much activation, you start to notice too much sympathetic dominance, like your stomach gets queasy, or maybe you're shaky, certainly you're sweaty, like your pupils, you know, start to get overdilated. Maybe it's, the lights feel too bright. I mean, you get your heart palpitations, all this stuff. According to Kyra, each climbing discipline requires being at a different number on the scale. So for speed, something that doesn't take as much focus because you know it so well, you maybe want to be like more of an eight out of 10 on that scale. Whereas lead, you maybe want to be more of like a four because you want to be really chill and relaxed because you don't want to make a mistake. And then bouldering kind of in between those two. 
do you have techniques if you say you come off the speed wall and you're like, I'm at a nine, I just, died. <laughs> you know, I just did it in six seconds. And I would assume you have some time between different disciplines, but then you got to get on the, the lead and you're like, I need to be at a four. How do you approach that? How do you sort of dial yourself back? It's kind of going to be interesting because the way the Olympic format works, we start with speed, we go straight into a bouldering round, and then after that bouldering round, we do lead. And so it kind of goes from like highest engagement to lowest engagement in that way. And the advice that my sports site gave is like there's kind of three things you can do. One is caffeine if you need to go up a level. Music is a good one. And then visualization are like the three things that I've been trying to like figure out how to use to my advantage. Music, it strikes me as something you could use to go up, but I assume you could also use it to go down. Yeah, I think so. So, for example, at the Olympic qualifying event where I qualified in Toulouse, France, I was like, you know, a level of 10 because of like nerves and excitement and like, honestly, kind of pure terror about being at the event that I'd like dreamed about for forever. And so basically in the isolation zone, which is where they put you so that they make sure that you can't cheat and see the climbs beforehand. I was listening to just straight opera music to keep me calm. It was like epic enough that made me feel like I was doing something important, but calming enough that I, it wasn't like getting my heart rate up. I have a little opera playlist now that I, I have for competitions if I'm feeling nervous. The level 10 Kyra's describing is something Dr. Shaw calls sympathetic dominance, another fancy psychological term. If you've ever had butterflies or felt like you might be sick to your stomach from nerves, you're familiar with sympathetic dominance. So your autonomic nervous system has the sympathetic branch and the parasympathetic branch. So sympathetic branch, we think of stereotypically as fight flight. So the muscles start to get activated. Maybe your palms get a little bit sweaty. Your brain starts to get to engage, like, you know, focus, attention, that sort of stuff. To a degree, it's helpful. Your body is mobilizing resources. Blood is going to your primary moving, your glutes, your quads, your hamstrings, your biceps. Your body's getting ready to fight or flee from the evolutionary perspective. I want to stick on that for a second because I think that's something everyone can really identify with. I know that feeling, right? It's when your heart starts racing, you start sweating, you get really nervous. I think I can think of it most frequently like, yeah, before public speaking, like having to give a best man speech. I'm thinking of Kyra going up to climb at the Olympics. She's probably going to be feeling that. When someone's feeling these feelings, what can they do to sort of engage the parasympathetic system? Because another thing I've heard is like a way to reframe this that's helpful is instead of thinking it as nervousness, you think of it as excitement. But I've never really found that to work because even when I'm nervous, I'm like, okay, I'm excited. I'm actually excited. I am, to use your words, I've heard this used for like mobilizing resources, but I'm sitting there and be like, I'm still terrified. Like (laughs) shifting the, shifting the framework does not, my heart's still racing. So what are some tools we can use to sort of dial that back? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's this fairly famous in the sports psychology world article that talks about getting the butterflies to fly in formation, right? So you yes, like, oh, I, I love please. that phrase. Exactly. I'm yeah. Like, well, just get those butterflies to fly together. They'll, you know, support your performance. So this cognitive restructuring can be helpful. It doesn't totally solve for the physiological sensations. I mean, so you're, you're trying to reinterpret like, oh, that heart beating faster. I'm just getting ready to go. And To some degree, it can be helpful, or for some individuals, that can really be useful, but not for everyone. So some tangible strategies. And so what we do is we look at what athletes, if you notice that you're a little bit overactivated, 
what would you do? And many of them will say, oh, you know, like I'll just, I'll just try to move my body a little bit. Maybe I'll do like a dynamic stretch or maybe I'll jog a little bit. And in that, like you're just trying to like match the physiological state with the sort of psychological state. And this is why sometimes exercise is efficacious for people with anxiety. It's like, whoa, the nervous system is revved and we're sitting still. Let's get this person moving. So if moving is a way to get your body to match a revved up sympathetic system, Dr. Shaw says breathing is a way to slow it down and engage the opposite system, the parasympathetic system. Usually what we teach in psychophysiology is this thing called heart rate variability training, which is simply breathing in for about five seconds and breathing out for about five seconds. So it's a 10 second breath cycle and you do that six times in a minute. And when you're doing that, usually what you'll notice once you sort of settle into it is that the heartbeat sort of increases a little bit on the inhale and it decreases a little bit on the exhale. And through that, you're stimulating the parasympathetic response. So you wanna learn the skill of breathing, so regulating your breath to sort of induce these changes in the autonomic nervous system, specifically get the sympathetic system to withdraw a little bit and to kick the parasympathetic system into gear. And once you learn that skill of sort of noticing what's going on in your body, using breath to shift the activation, you can use that in a competition setting or before you have to give your best man speech or someone cuts you off and you notice that like rush of adrenaline. You're like, whoa, maybe you're trembling or shaking. You can sort of help get your sympathetic system to disengage more quickly by saying like, oh, okay, okay, you know, I'm safe. And I'll just do a couple breaths here. There are two other strategies Kyra says have really worked for her. One is visualization and another is something called present focus which is basically exactly what it sounds like, focusing on only what's in front of you and not thinking about the outcome or result of the climb. Here's Kyra talking about visualization. Something that I was really worried about and also talking to my sports psych about was I kept picturing, you know, like, what if I don't make it? And I was like, how do I stop doing that? She's like, well, you can't actually stop picturing bad outcomes. That's like kind of just human nature. We tend to do that. But what you can do, and this is something that I think it just applies to kind of all areas of life, is when you're picturing those bad outcomes, you also then picture a good outcome. So anytime that I saw myself maybe slipping on that first move on the lead climb, I also pictured myself topping the lead climb because I could be like, oh man, like I don't want that to happen. Like, what do I want to have happen? And then I'd picture that. And so then at least every time you have a bad thought, you then also at least have a good thought. So they balance out. And then hopefully you have then ideally more good thoughts than bad thoughts. So is that something like you'll then incorporate going to the Olympics? I would imagine the same sort of like good outcome visualization. Definitely. So like, for example, there was two back-to-back World Cups here in Salt Lake City. The first one really didn't go very well for me. So I talked to my sports psych in between and was like, what can I like change? How can I use this to learn how I'm going to do this at the Olympics, basically? And then I identified a couple of things of like where my focus could be and what I could change. And then the second weekend, so it was only, you know, separated by five days, basically, I did way better. It got eighth place. Just the difference of where I was focusing and what I was focusing on really changed. And also using that visualization of looking at a climb, picturing myself doing it, going through that in my head. Because I guess that actually preps your like engagement. So like if you picture yourself like efficiently doing a climb, then your body is more ready to actually do it. Now, personally, I've always been a little skeptical of visualization. I've always understood how it might help you mentally prepare. But did it really have a physiological component as Cairo is suggesting it does? Could it help your body physically prepare? I asked Dr. Shaw. So if you just for a second, close your eyes and think about a lemon and then think about being in the kitchen, grabbing a knife, cutting that lemon open and like maybe smelling it or noticing the juicy. I mean, there's 
so just in there, you might have like been like, oh yeah, lemon, mm, I can smell it. I like, mm, I can like feel it in my mouth. You can activate your sensory pathways with an imagined experience, and your mind has projected this, and then your body responds in accordance. Some people find that like, oh, what's the utility of that? I mean, there are exercises that just demonstrate like you have the capacity to generate an experience that's not real in the present moment and your body responds in accordance. I mean, so you can use the brains, we can use sort of the kinesthetic system. The athletes can often feel themselves doing their sport in their body. Like they can drop into their body and feel how would that feel? And as you're tuning into those sensations, as you're creating those sensations, I mean, you have a sensory motor strip in your, in your head, it runs in your cortex, it runs like a headband from one ear over to the other. I mean, you're activating the sensory motor strip. When you feel that little feeling in your quad or in your bicep, like your brain is saying yes now, you know, so we want the timing of it to be similar to the actual timing on the wall. For as useful as that visualization might be before the climb, Kyra says that when she's actually on the wall, she tries to focus exclusively on the moment in front of her, something she calls present focus. She's trying to no longer think about the outcome or the result. Of course, that's often easier said than done. Something that we do is say I'm like, oh, I don't want to think about the gold medal. Your brain is, it's going to think about the gold medal. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, and so then you're like, oh no, I'm thinking about the gold medal. But instead, it's more of like, you're never going to be able to not think about it. So you don't want to punish yourself for thinking about it. Instead, it's like just kind of re-aiming the focus. So it's like, if I'm focusing on the gold medal, I'm not going to be focusing on this climb in front of me. So instead you want to kind of like switch the focus of those two and have the gold medal go into the background and the climb come into the foreground is kind of how I picture it. Dr. Shaw says an effective way for athletes to bring their mind back to present focus is through bodily sensations. When you're on the wall, your mind has to be anchored into your body on the wall. Your hands and your feet are on the wall. We need your mind to be on the wall. Sometimes your gaze can help anchor your mind. The feeling of your hands on the holds and your feet, the pressure that your feet are applying, that can pull your mind into your body. It is very normal for your mind to jump ahead or be stuck on that move that you didn't perform well enough below, you slipped, whatever. But usually athletes report that they perform their best when they have a present focus. So we try to sort of notice when it's happening, give athletes strategies like coming back to, again, sensations, coming back to the breath to get back into the present focus. We can also try to train it off the wall with things like mindfulness. Dr. Shaw says that present focus is all about focusing on the process, one step at a time. In a way, similar to the growth mindset, it involves a radical acceptance of what is happening right in front of you, not what you wish had happened or what you hope might happen. In the moment, you have to be bringing yourself back to, okay, now what do I do? Now what do I do? How can I work with myself here? Ooh, this position's uncomfortable. Is there anything I can modify about it? Or do I just have to sort of hang through? Oh, I'm feeling like I'm getting pumped. I think this is it. Well, hang on, hang on. You don't have to do three more moves. Can you just hang here, right? Can you decrease your heart rate? Can you shake out your hands? Can you just do one more move? Don't do three more, do one more. And after you do that one more, hang on. Can you do one more? Could you do one more? I mean, that's this like process focus where you're zoomed in on the present moment. You're thinking and directing yourself to things that are helpful for you to do whatever you're doing right now. And again, sport is awesome because you can anchor yourself into the body and that very real sensation can be just a very quick way that you zoom back into the present. Kyra highlights speed climbing as an area where this present focus is especially useful. When the whole climb takes about seven seconds, there's not a lot of room for error. Your mind has to be completely focused on where it is. 
it's kind of funny with speed climbing especially too i kind of like to describe it as what if you were running the 100 meter dash but then you like threw marbles onto the course or something because <laughs> there's like so many factors of things that can go wrong in speed climbing like you can just miss a hold you can like completely botch a foot you can hit your knee super hard and like knock you off the wall like so many things can go wrong when you're approaching that wall what is your sort of mindset there's a couple things so that the timer has three beeps it goes beep 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 and you have to go on the last beep and so i have a routine that i go through in my head as those beeps are going so that i don't fall start so it's like it says ready and then on the first beep i say ready so it's ready and then lean back to get into like my start position and then on the last beep i say go so in my head that's what's happening but then as I'm going, I have a few anchor points on the wall because it is only 7.9 seconds. So there's a few times where I'm like, okay, foot on the point or, okay, pull. And there's three points on the wall where I have like a keyword kind of that I say to myself. The funny thing with speed climbing as well, because you start getting towards the top. And if you start thinking like, oh, this might be a seven, you're going to mess up. It's that same present focus. You really have to stay like anchored into exactly what you're doing and like focus on pulling hard and fast in order to get the PR. So it's really easy to become focused on it when you're like, oh, this was a really good run. And then mess it up <laughs> at the very end. <laughs> Has this helped you at all out outside of climbing? Like I just realized all these techniques that apply to the walls could maybe be used outside of it, but I, I don't know. No, I think it definitely has. I think climbing teaches you a lot about grit and perseverance in general. And I think I definitely have a similar outlook on life, I guess. Like you can ask my roommate, but there was a time once where I was like, I'm going to flip this door. It'll be super easy to just change which direction the door goes. And I like proceeded to carve out holes with an X-Acto knife into the door frame for like another three and a half hours. So things like that, or like we had to take down some cabinets in our kitchen. I was like, I can definitely do this myself with just a hammer. No problem. You, you know, like things like that, just that, that kind of perseverance, even in the face of not having the correct tools has worked. <laughs> now, maybe you're thinking that switching the direction of a door sounds like a somewhat inconsequential example of how Kyra's climbing has translated to her everyday life. But for me, it was actually a great summation of this idea of the growth mindset and what sticks out to me most about talking to Kyra. When she looks at problems, she doesn't seem to stop at, well, this looks hard. She goes beyond that to, how can I get this done? It's how she approached climbing after her back surgery and how she's still approaching it now. Even the other day at the gym, I was trying to climb where you had to like run at the wall and then jump off a foot. So just like run straight at the wall, basically. And I was finding myself not close to doing it. And I was like, I really feel like I could do this. And then I thought about it and was like, am I trying as hard as I possibly can? And I was like, no, I'm not. And so then I tried again and did it. And that's really what a lot of those moves take. So being able to do that in competition in front of a crowd and like maybe fall on your face is like kind of part of it. And that to me, feels like a great place to end. As we all try new things, may we remember that falling on our face is just kind of part of it. Thanks to Kyra and Dr. Shaw for offering up their time and their incredible insights. Kyra's competition will begin on August 3rd, so be sure not to miss it. We'll be back with another episode next week. It's our last episode, this time with Paralympian Oksana Masters, who has competed in four different sports and won medals in three of them. So pretty good way to end. Thank you to Jessamyn Molly and Justin Wright of Seaplane Armada for production, editing, and original music. Thanks to John Wilde, Sam Shuby, Corinne Furman, Peter Lee, and Melissa Yang for their help with production and promotion. Thanks to you all for listening. If you want to reach me, I'm at clay underscore skipper at gq.com or at clayskipper on Instagram. Talk to you next week. Thank you.